Articles by Desiring God Tree of Shame The Horror and Honor of Good Friday Written and read by David Mathis Even death on a cross The apostle dares to add this obscenity as the low point of his Lord's self-humbling. Jesus humbled himself, Paul says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Today, with crosses on our steeples and around our necks, we scarcely perceive the original scandal of such a claim. But to any new hearer in the first century, Jew or Greek, Paul's words were almost unimaginable. Crucified? We grimace today at the thought of nails being driven through human hands and feet. We squirm at a crown of thorns pressed into the brow, piercing the skin, sending blood streaming down the face. And once these violent acts had torn flesh and bone, the pain of crucifixion had only begun. Hours later, many bled out. Others died of asphyxiation, eventually too decimated to even breathe. This was not just death, but torture unto death. It was nauseatingly gruesome. But not only was it calculated to amplify and prolong physical pain, it was designed, almost psychotically, diabolically, to utterly shame the victim. The horror of the cross was not only that it was done, but that it was done to be seen. It was not only literally excruciating, but humiliating in the extreme. Some of us might find the tune of the old rugged cross too light for the weight of Good Friday. But the second line of George Bernard's 1913 lyrics captures well the significance of the cross in the ancient world, the emblem of suffering and shame. Device for Disgrace In his book, Crucifixion, Martin Hingle produces examples of the negative attitude towards crucifixion universal in antiquity. In short, far more than just negative, the whole spectacle of the infamous stake or the tree of shame was so offensive, so vile, as to be obscene in polite conversation. Hingle observes the use of crux, that is cross, as a vulgar taunt among the lower classes. The mannerly did not stoop to such a ghastly subject, whether with tongues or even with pen, which accounts for the deep aversion from the cruelest of penalties in the literary world. Few ancient writers dared to provide anywhere near the crucifixion details that we find in the four Gospels. In the century prior to Christ, Cicero called crucifixion that most cruel and disgusting penalty. The historian Josephus referred to it as the most wretched of deaths. Celsus, a second century opponent of early Christianity, asked rhetorically about a crucified Christ, what drunken old woman telling stories to lull a small child to sleep would not be ashamed of muttering such preposterous things? Not only was a crucified Messiah preposterous, it was shameful. In first century Palestine, Jesus' contemporaries were haunted by the regular spectacle of crosses, 
and their manifest pain and shame. And added to that ignominy, they knew of God's own curse in Scripture of anyone hanged on a tree. Is it of any wonder then that Paul would speak of a crucified Messiah as utter folly, sheer madness among the unbelievers of his day? The honor of Messiah and the disgrace of crucifixion made the idea nonsensical and disgusting, contradictory and offensive, preposterous and shameful. And it's the public shame of the cross, rather than the pain we might be prone to think of first, that Hebrews mentions at the climax of his rehearsing of the faithful. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Enduring the cross. This crushing shame of crucifixion offers a vantage on Good Friday that few today emphasize. Theologians have often spoken of Christ's active obedience in life and passive obedience in his death. We might find some help in this distinction, but passivity is not the emphasis of Hebrews 12 too. The image in Hebrews 12 is strikingly active, unnervingly so. We might even call it athletic a race to be run, surrounded with onlookers and a prize to be claimed at the end. Jesus' enduring the cross in verse 2 parallels enduring the race in verse 1, where to finish is irreducibly to achieve, which we see in Jesus despising the shame at Calvary. As David De Silva comments, to despise the towering, paralyzing shame of the cross entails more than simply enduring the experience of disgrace rather than shrinking from it. Rather, when Jesus despised the shame of the cross, he scorned it and determined to overcome it. He confronted it. He looked the looming shame in the eye and disregarded what would have been the final barrier for other men. But simply knowing himself innocent would not be enough against the extreme suffering and shame of the cross. Endurance to the finish demanded more. Hebrews, memorably, tells us he endured for the joy set before him. But specifically, what joy could that have been? What reward could have been powerful enough to pull him forward to finish this race with the very emblem of suffering and shame standing in his way? What foretaste of joy or joys could endure the cross, pleased to be crushed. The Gospel of John, written by Jesus' closest associate, gives us the best glimpse into his mind and heart as he readied himself for the cross. Two particular sections, among others, speak to the substance and shades of his joy as he owned and embraced the cross in the hours leading up to his sacrifice. The first section is John 12, Verses 27 to 33, sometime after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Previously, Jesus had said three times that his hour had not yet come. Now he owns that it has. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Whatever we uncover of Jesus' joy, it will not be trouble-free. 
Three times in these climactic chapters, we read of his being troubled. But the presence of trouble does not mean the absence of joy. In fact, the reality of such trouble demonstrates the depth and power of his joy to move into and through the trouble rather than flee. Here we find a first source of his joy, the glory of his Father. When Jesus owns the arrival of his hour, this is the first motivation he vocalizes. He had lived to his Father's glory, not his own. And now, as the cross fast approaches, he prays first for this and receives the affirmation of an immediate answer from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Next comes a second joy. What the cross will achieve over the ancient foe. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 12, 31. Satan, whom Paul would call the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air, would be decisively unseated as ruler of this world. And Jesus would experience the joy of unseating him and being his father's instrument to disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The tree of shame in time would shame the foe. Jesus then mentions a third joy, the saving of his people. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself, John 12, 32. He would be lifted up from the earth, first in being lifted up to the cross, as John immediately adds in verse 33. Make no mistake, in the joy set before him was the joy of love. He had come to save. And on Thursday night, he would wash his disciples' feet to show them the love that in part sent him to the cross. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. My joy in them. The second passage, Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, on the very night when he gave himself into custody, echoes two of the joys already introduced and adds one further joy set before him that brings us back to Hebrews 12. First, Jesus prays explicitly about sharing his own joy, and that, again, as an expression of his love for his disciples. John 17, 13, These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' joy, deep enough, thick enough, rich enough to carry him to and through the cross, will not only be his, but he will put it in his people through both his words and sacrificial work. John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Second, Jesus also prays in John 17 in anticipation of his Father's glory. He recalls that his life has been devoted to his Father's glory, to making his name known three times. But now, in the consecration of prayer, and on his final evening before suffering and shame, he prays, third, for his own exaltation. Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Misunderstand the utter holiness of Christ and of this moment, and we will misunderstand this culminating joy. 
returning to his father and taking his seat with his work accomplished on the throne of the universe. The joy of being enthroned in heaven, glorified at the right hand of his father, will not come any other way than through and because of the cross. And his exaltation and enthronement will mean not only personal honor, but personal nearness. At the right hand is the seat of both honor and proximity to his father. He wanted not only to have the throne, but again to have his father. This coming exaltation and proximity is the particular joy, among others, that Hebrews 12.2 points to. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Foretaste of glory and joy. We return then to the honor that overcame the tree of shame. Good Friday tells us of the cosmic war between honor and shame. At the cross, that obscene emblem of shame, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. Good Friday is the great reversal. The utter humiliation and imponderable disgrace would have kept lesser souls from choosing Calvary. But Jesus willed it for joy. Even as horrible as it was, it pleased him. Knowing his innocence, he anticipated the joy of glorifying his father and defeating Satan and rescuing his people in love. And these joys set before him came together in his victorious return to his father's side, now as the exalted God-man. As Isaiah had prophesied seven centuries before, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In the agony and ignominy of Good Friday, he saw. He saw the joy set before him and began to taste it, and he was satisfied enough to endure, even death on a cross. For more resources, visit DesiringGod.org.